Today, we're going to be continuing our series, which is what we were just talking about before. Um, Tori was just really letting you in there. Uh, if you haven't got a series booklet, they're just in the front row here in front of Asher. So just make sure you do grab one. If not now, if uh, don't don't leave without one. There's beautiful photography in there. And, and we really do hope that, that it would be, if not something for here on Sunday as we're gathered, it would also be something for at home, for using as a devotional, for, for journeying through the material a little bit deeper and spending time with God. So, so please grab one. Make sure you've got one. We're going to just keep printing off a little run every week. So there's always a little stack of them. But um, this is our series. And last week, we started the series by looking at Part one, we introduced the series, and if you weren't here, I just want to encourage you, please, 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 please go to our website, please listen to the podcast, and we always put up on the podcast, we put up the slides, so at the bottom of the page on where the, where the, web, where the audio is, if you go a little bit lower, the slides are always there, so if you missed anything last week, or you want to recap last week, there was a lot in there, as we talked about the Greek dualistic vision of the body, I mean, that's no small thing, um, if you want to recap, if you missed it, go there, but essentially, if you're joining us for the first time today, and you have not been at church since last week. Here's what this is all about. We are exploring this vision of Christ-centered materiality. And what we mean by that is not materialism. We're not talking about our seeking of material things. We're talking about how do we exist in a material world? How do we exist here in this time, in this place, in our bodies, in this, uh, in this city? What does it look like to be a physical human being uh, connected to the divine, to our spiritual God, to this Christ who is making all things new and his Holy Spirit amongst us? So today, I want to invite you to stand. We're going to read our text for today, which is John chapter 4. If you um, have a Bible, feel free to open it to John 4 with me. Uh, too, stand, stand with me. And uh, we're going to read the scripture together. If you have a phone and you can open BibleGateway.com, feel free to look up John chapter 4 quickly on BibleGateway.com. And if you pick the New Living Translation, you'll be reading the same one as me, which is great. Um, but we, we stand to honor the scripture. We stand to say with our bodies that this is important, that it's an authority, that it's a value in our lives and in our faith. Just like we stood to worship, we stand for the reading of scripture. And so this is today's text, John 4. 1 through to 30. So it's a fair chunk. So if you're reading along with me, I hope you're there. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and then returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please, give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. So she said to Jesus, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift that God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said. And this, is a, this well is very deep. Where would you go? Where would you get this living water? 
And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? And Jesus replied, well, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water that I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Oh, please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again. And I won't have to come here to get water. Well, go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband for you have had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man that you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped? And Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, in fact, indeed, it's here now, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And the Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit. And so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. And just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman. But none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why, do you, why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well. She ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. This is the word of God for us today. Grab a seat. Big long reading. But it's a wonderful story. It's a well-known story. Even as I'm reading it now, you've probably, you may have already heard it before. You may have already uh, sat with that story before of Christ and the Samaritan woman. Today, I want you just to hold it a little longer. We're going to come to that near the end of our time together today. But that is our text that we're aiming everything at. And we're going to get there in a little while. Until then, um, I'm going to be a bit of a fire hydrant today. It is, there's a lot coming out. There's a lot in this next little while. Uh, so brace yourself. I had a few people after the nine o'clock be like, could have told us it was going to be that much stuff. So I'm just making sure you know. There's a fair bit in here, so wake wake up a little bit, shake it off. We're going big and we're going for um, a pretty big talk today. Because today we're continuing where we left off last Sunday. In our Matter Matters series, we are considering an answer to St. Paul's very important question. This is the hinge pin of our whole series. Our whole series, Matter Matters, comes from this verse. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Asks St. Paul to the Corinthian church. Do we not know that our bodies are a place where God dwells? Now, that's a huge idea. But actually, as we discovered last week, for Paul, this is completely normal. Paul is not dualistic. Paul has not bought into the Greek Platonic thought of separating his body and his, his soul to him and the bodies around him. They have been deeply shaped by a Jewish worldview. There's a couple of things that are at play with this. And one of the things I want to talk about today, the one thing I want to dig into is 
this idea that he calls our bodies the temple. What does it mean for our body to be the temple? What is that? Now for St. Paul, there's a far bigger argument to this question here. And so it's going to greatly help us if we know what he's talking about when he uses that word. The task today for this next little while is I want to help cultivate for you a better imagination for what happens in our minds when we read that word. What comes to mind when you see, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? What comes to mind for Paul as a Jewish believer, a holistic Jewish believer? What comes to mind that we should then be thinking about as he's using that word to get us to see something? Well, simply, the Greek word is actually nothing profound. It's just the word naos. Naos just means a shrine or a building that's dedicated to a deity. It's a word about physical things meeting and colliding with a divine presence. Nothing new there. That's been around for a long time. Um, It's a Greek word that uh, would have meant to the Greeks that um, it is a vehicle for the spirit, whereas for the Jews, it would have been a completely different understanding because the Jews didn't separate temple from spirit. For them, a temple was a space for the divine. It wasn't a, it was not about getting somewhere else. It was about, it was what it was holding then and there. And so just like if we were to walk past a bank, we would expect in a bank there to be money and finance and mortgages. That's what happens in a bank. Or just if we walked past an engineering workshop, we'd expect there to be the, like, the buzz of a welder and the clattering of metal as people try and make some solutions for some problems. Just like those would be the cases in those buildings, so it is with a temple. We would expect a temple to be a space where God dwells, where, where, where the things of the divine are the topic. Of conversation. And there's a really big story behind all of that. And for us to understand Paul and how he's using that word, we need to think about three different things to do with temple. And so today, this is what we're going to be, we're going to be tackling. Firstly, we need to talk about the fact that the creation cosmos is a temple. That woke some of you up. The second thing is that we need to talk about the actual temples of Israel. Some of you will know what those are. And thirdly, We need to talk about the whole new temple that Jesus came to establish. So firstly, let's start with creation as temple. Buckle up. This one is a a bit of a wild ride. Our faith has an origin story. It has a beginning. And in the start of our story, it is an emphasis on the fact that creation was created by a creator and he created it and it was good. Now, I'm a parent of a toddler which means I, unlike some of you, have seen the origin story of Minions. Any others? Yeah? Despicable Me 1 and 2, they're pretty good movies, but Minions, that's, that's a good tale. As it tells the origin story of where these little yellow uh, fellows came from. Now, this is what we have at the start of the Bible. We have the origin story, the beginning, where it all began. And here are the words as we open our Bibles. The first words on the text are, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 verse 1. And on it goes to recount this poetic narrative of how God has taken the chaos of nothing. He's ordered it into a good and purposeful creation. Now, in the beginning, God created maybe the first words we find in our Bibles But for most of us, we probably resonate better with the title of this book. In the beginning, we misunderstood. 
It's a book by Johnny Miller, John Soden, two conservative scholars, as they unpack their journey through their misinterpretation of the opening of the Bible. The authors make a very valid point in this book. Most of us are making a grave error with our handling of the book of Genesis, seeking answers from a book that is not trying to provide the answers we are hoping it to provide. In our post-enlightenment scientific world, we desperately want the opening account of Genesis to affirm and to line up with the scientific findings of our Western progress. And so we try and bend and buckle everything about what days was it? How long were the days? Is evolution possible or not? We're trying to buckle this whole thing into the story. And sadly, all of this is just missing the point. Because as the authors have said, in the beginning of the Bible, we have misunderstood. Stood. Another very helpful read, if this is starting to prick your interest a little bit, is from Dr. John Walton, who I think is one of the leading scholars of Genesis um, in all of the world at the moment. Dr. John Walton says this. It's incredibly helpful in his book, The Lost World of Genesis 1. We believe that the Bible was written for us, that it's for everyone of all times and places because it's God's word. Yep, true. However, but it wasn't written to us. Do you notice the difference there? Yeah, we believe the Bible was written for us. Yes, that's true. But, but it wasn't written to us. It wasn't written in our language. It wasn't written with our culture in mind or our culture in view. You know, this is the 21st century world where there's smartphones and cafes and flat whites and soy milk and a, and a satellite that's gone out into the world and shown us what the world looks like floating in the world, uh, in, in the universe. The first century audience had no idea that this was even possible. This is not the world of the first century reader. And so, for John, uh, for Walton, sorry, there's some important factors that we must engage with when we engage with Genesis. We must be very careful. Firstly, we need to ground the book of Genesis in its right time and its right place of being produced in history. Okay, God, God didn't create the world and then dump the book of Genesis there like some sort of help manual that you find when you open up that product you've just bought. That's not how it worked. It came from Israel's story. And in particular, it came from Israel's story post being in Egypt. So after Egypt, when they're full of all these questions and queries as to who they are as the people of God, Moses, most scholars say Moses is the author of the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all five books together making this collected volume, this collected story of the covenant people of God. The covenant people of God. Connected, and that is the theme. It's an incredibly important story. It's a beautiful story. It's a story full of so much stuff. And in that, there are different types of literature. As we're reading across those five volumes, those five books, there's all kinds of stuff in there. There's historic history. There's statistics and census data. There's recollection of laws. There's poetic narrative. And the emphasis is this, regardless of the type of literature we're handling, all of it is connected to the story of covenant. The story of God and his people and his interactions and his promises with them. And importantly, it's grounded in that time. It's a product of its world, seeing through the eyes of the worldview of those who were authoring it. Yes, it's inspired by God. We're not, we're not tampering with anything that's unorthodox today as I say that. But we also must acknowledge it's a product of its time and place. Just like the New Testament letters are a time and place. 
so too is the opening of our Bible. So how did they think the universe worked? And what was holding the universe together? Which brings us to the opening of Genesis, brings us to what we're talking about today. We read back into that opening story of Genesis and we ask all kinds of questions of the text that it's not trying to answer. How long were the days? How old is the earth? Were there dinosaurs part of this? Was it really a talking snake? Did Adam have a belly button? Like these are all important questions. They're questions that aren't wrong. It's not wrong to ask those things. But because Genesis is a story trying to answer other completely different questions, we shouldn't be shocked when our questions don't actually engage with the text. And Dan Kimball in this terrific book called How Not to Read the Bible, in this book, Dan Kimball lists the type of questions the post-Egypt Israelites would have been walking around asking. This is actually what they were thinking. And this is the context. This is the seedbed for what Moses then wrote the story of Genesis into. This is what they're thinking. Are we going to survive here in the desert? Are we safe here? Is there really one God? What about all the Egyptian gods? Are they angry that we've left Egypt? Is this God who rescued us still here or are we now left alone? What do we have to do to please this one God so that we will have crops that don't fail and we'll have food for our families? Should we worship the sun? Should we worship the moon like the Egyptians did? Or, or should we worship like the Canaanites who are now nearby? Is the Egyptian story of how the world made, is that the true one? Like These are actually the things they would have been walking along, thinking about and processing. And it's in that seedbed that the answers, the story of what, of what Genesis starts to recollect is actually trying to answer. Uh, this is the Egyptian creation story. You know, This is the story that they would have experienced back in Egypt. The story goes like this. The world was formless and dark, and then one of the Egyptian gods separated water from land. The offspring of that god, Geb, becomes the earth. And the goddess, Nut, she um, becomes, becomes the sky. And in this image, Geb is lying down, Nut is holding up the sky, and the sun god is off to the left, riding the sun across the sky in a boat. And to the right, riding the moon across the sky. Because the Egyptians believed that there was waters behind the sky. The sky was kind of this, this firmament uh, that was holding the water up. And then behind them was all of these different things moving around in boats. And gods were in each boat moving those things around. So this is the story that the Israelites have left Egypt with, asking and thinking and pondering on. This is what they are trying to figure out for themselves. This is the seedbed for the Torah. And with those questions and with those perspectives in mind, let us now go back to Genesis 1 and find for ourselves some beautiful and wonderful answers as we reconsider it in that space and story. For one, the Genesis account is not as focused on material argument as it is on telling of a functional purpose. So much of Genesis 1 is talking about what things do, not necessarily how they got there. As the Israelite creation story, there are not multiple gods at play, like the Egyptian story. There is one God, one creator, and this one God is also some sort of form of relation in himself. I'm going to pull up a reading in a moment from Genesis later on where God is speaking in plural. There's a, there's a start of the Trinity here. There's a start of this divine relationship here. And we see this one God who has created a good creation. 
and it's been ordered with good purpose. Everything starts out with everything right and as it should be. It's a picture of, there's a word for this, shalom. Everything is in shalom. It's right, it's as it should be, it's perfect. It is working in itself. Notice in the Egyptian story, everything still is a moving cog and the gods are still making everything work. This is not the story for the Israelite story. One of the unique things in the Israelite story is that this God, on the seventh day, he stops. He rests. And this is an image of a king taking up their place on the throne of their kingdom. This is an image to say this God has made what he has made and then he is dwelling and enjoying it. This God is ruling and this God is reigning. You see, this God is one with what he has made and what he has made is one with him. In that Egyptian story, the gods were not resting. They were still making everything happen and they had to be pleased. But in this story, God has done his work. The world is as it should be and hence he is now resting in it. The cosmos are this God's temple. He has come to rest in it, to rule in it, and to reign in it. Now theologically, that's quite a big thought. Theologically, that's called seeing the temple perspective. Reading Genesis and seeing the temple perspective. And and in his book, Genesis 1 Through Ancient Eyes, Dr. John Walton just unpacks that a little bit. And so I've just got a little summary of what that looks like. The purpose of this book has been to introduce the reader to a careful reconsideration of the nature of Genesis 1. He says this, I have proposed that the most careful, responsible reading of the text will proceed with the understanding that that it it is ancient literature, not modern science. And when we read the text in the context of the ancient world, we discover that what the author truly intended to communicate and what his audience would have clearly understood is far different from what has been traditionally understood about the passage. The position that I have proposed regarding Genesis 1 may be designated the Cosmic Temple Inauguration View. This label picks up the most important aspect of the view. The cosmos is being given its functions as God's temple, where he has taken up his residence and from where he runs the cosmos. The world is his headquarters. Ah, there's so much in there. And for some of you, you might just be like, Wow, that's just, okay, you can stop now. I've got my thing to go and chew on for a while. If that's the case, I encourage you, read the book, grab the book. Also, go on YouTube. Uh, And Dr. John Walton was actually a guest at Laidlaw College a couple of years ago. And there's a bunch of the videos of him presenting this at a Laidlaw open night. You can just watch a bunch of the stuff as he engages. And one of the things I'm really respectful of when I watched this stuff years ago and started to encounter some of these things for myself is that Dr. John Walton, upon times of Q&A, he was so good at handling that moment with wisdom and care and also just with a lot of knowledge. And I think when you see someone in action during Q&A, it really tells you how deep this thing is. And I just was so blown away as he just handled all these different perspectives in the room and as he worked with that. And so check it out for yourself. If this is enough for you today, you can switch off, go home. Don't go home now, but but, but that, that might be enough for some of you. In this temple... If this world is God's headquarters and he's taken up residence in it and the cosmos is his temple, then in this temple we find another part of the story. It's later on. It's in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28, near the end of the chapter. We see this. 
Then God said, let us, so there, again, there's this plural language. It's fascinating. I remember the first time I realized it said us in church one time, and I was just like, wait, what? Uh, so let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them and he said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Now, in the Egyptian and Mesopotamian temples and culture that Israel had been part of, there were these things called idols. These image-bearing idols. Here's how they worked. You made an idol for the God that you were trying to represent, and then you worshipped it because it not only represented the God, but God came and dwelt in that idol. The God will bless you through this idol being in your home. The God will hear you as you pray to this idol, as you give an offering to this idol. And for the Genesis account to use the imagery of these image-bearing idols is to connect with an idea that had been going on in all of the ancient world, which is that there are these ways in which physical things represent spiritual realities. But here's what the author, here's what Moses, here's what Genesis does. It's not a physical thing that's being made into the idol by people. No, God is the one making the idol. God is making the image-bearing thing. And placing it into creation, placing it into his temple. Humanity is to be God's idol in his temple. We are the image bearers of God into his temple of creation. Humankind, we're not angels. We're not the angels. We're also not the animals. In that scripture, it talks a lot about the animals. Animals are another creation of God, but but we are above them. We are not just purely mammal. We are not purely angel. We are the divine intersection where flesh and spirit have met. We are the ones in which we are made of the image of God to carry the purposes of God as we work in his temple. I love it when I hear someone say, you know, you're the image of God. And I'm always like, cute idea, cute idea. Because this is actually what it's trying to say. It's big stuff. It's theological stuff. It's gritty stuff. It needs to be thought about and wrestled with. We are the image bearers of God. We are like his idols placed into the temple of creation to reflect who this God is and to reflect his purposes into the world. All of that from just the first chapter of the Bible. Welcome to church. In the beginning, we have indeed misunderstood. Which brings me to the second part of today's talk. I want to talk a little bit more about the actual temples of Israel. Just to remind you, in case you're wondering, where's this going again? We're talking about the fact that we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says. So let's talk about physical temples. For the sake of time today, um, I'm not going to take as long to this part as I just took to the other part. But it is important to note that there's a bit of Israel's story here, again, further on from post-Egypt. Um, as they travelled, as they travelled through the, promise, uh, the desert towards the promised land, uh, the Lord gave them the tabernacle. The tabernacle, or another way of saying it, is it's a, it's a moving temple. It's a mobile temple. And we read about this in the story of Israel as they navigated the desert. This was a space that was set up and functioned like that of a temple. But it was one that could be moved and as they followed God throughout the desert. And then the king after David, who is King Solomon, which is David's son, he then took the mobile temple 
And he was the first one to build a physical stable temple that stayed in the same place. In 1 Kings 6 and 7, we see the recollection of what Solomon did and we, we see how he built this temple. This is Solomon's temple here. This is a rendering of it. And in 1 Kings 8, something very, very important happens. The Ark of the Covenant is brought to the temple. The Ark of the Covenant is um, what contains the, the tablets from Mount Sinai. The ta- the, that's why it's called the Ark of the Covenant. It's God's covenant to his people. Uh, it's brought to the temple and it's placed in the, into, the Holy of Holy, into the holies. And uh, it's like the last piece gets put into the circuit and this thing fires up. On it is. And the function of the temple begins to work. And it says in 1 Kings 8 that this is what happens. When the priests came out of the holy place... A thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not continue their service because of the cloud, for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. And then Solomon prayed, Oh Lord, you have said that you would live in a thick cloud of darkness, and now I have built a glorious temple for you, a place where you can live forever. So do you see what's happening here? Just like the Genesis story, where everything had been made and set as it should, and then this God dwelt. So it is with this temple. The Lord's presence is filling the temple. Here he is with his people again. And so from here, the life of the Israelite revolves around this temple. It rotates around this and their rhythms as a, as a nation. And for years, it works around keeping the inputs of the temple happening so that the outputs of the temple can happen. The right offerings and sacrifices are brought to the temple to get the outputs of God's presence and his work of blessings and atonement. And then when the temple is destroyed and the Israelites are enslaved to Babylon, when they're in Babylon, it's the the loss of their temple that they grieve so much. They're having to worship again in another land. It's like the Egypt story all over again. And here they are in Babylon. They've lost their temple. They've lost the presence of God amongst them. And they're in a land of other temples and other idols. They miss their one. They miss it. They wish they could go back to it. They, miss they, could, they wish they could go back to where Yahweh was with them. And so when they're freed and they get to return home, what do they do immediately? They build another temple. Herod builds the second temple. And this is the temple that would have been at work when we arrive at the world of Jesus. This is the second temple of Jerusalem. It is the one of Herod. And there it is sitting up on the top. And isn't it a little bit like when we are in Auckland driving across the Harbour Bridge and we see the Sky Tower and the Sky Tower sort of just grabs that architectural vision for us and it's like, wow, look at that thing sitting up there. So it was with the temple. It sat in this place of prominence. It sat up on this hill and it was there for all to see. There's an architectural story being told here as this is placed where it's placed to show what it's showing. And that, that is the world of Jesus right there. And so that brings me to the third part for today. What is it that Jesus is changing? What is it that Jesus is up to with his ministry? Well, back to our reading where we started. Okay, so in John 4, we have this incredible story of Jesus at work with the Samaritan woman. It's what a thing to eavesdrop on. Like, what a story to eavesdrop on. What a beautiful thing. Just to remind you just how it went. Jesus was thirsty. This woman comes along. He asks her for a drink. And then there's this kind of weird double-layered conversation that keeps happening. Jesus is speaking prophetically. She is speaking naturally. He's saying, I'm going to give you living water. She's like, you haven't even bought a bucket. Like, it's just this total thing of like cross wires. 
And that's what's actually going on in the story. Jesus is declaring something prophetically with his word of knowledge, even over her history. And she is just this woman of the physical things, and she can't quite see the spiritual reality amongst them. And just to remind you, this is what happens. He, he kind of breaks through with that word about her husbands, and she says, oh my goodness, you're right, you must be a prophet. And then her next question is so bizarre. This is her first question. Well, tell me. Why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place to worship? Remember, remember this? So just go back. She's asking this. Why is it you think that that is the place that all the worship has to happen? Why can't, you know, it's, our Samaritan claim is that it's here on Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped. And she's asking, why can't it be a different mountain? Why does it have to be your one? She is saying, why does it have to happen over in that temple? Why can't it happen here? Why does it have to be limited to that place? And in verse 21 and 23, Jesus' answer is stunning. Jesus replies, oh, believe me, dear woman, which actually really struck me this week when I was prepping this, just this beautiful way of like, dear woman, like, oh, the compassion of Jesus, the, the beautiful posturing of Jesus, like, believe me, dear woman. He's not like, believe me, silly lady. It's like, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain, as in Mount Gerizim, or in Jerusalem. He goes on to say this in verse 23. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship Him that way. For God is spirit. So those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Let's just pause for a second and remind ourselves of what has got us to this point today. Let's just, just take stock for a second. Hold on. God made a cosmos... That is a temple for himself to come and rule and rest in. Israel made a temple and his glorious presence came and filled it and he ruled and rested there. That temple is on a mountain. And Jesus is saying that those mountains are changing. Jesus is saying something new is coming. And there's a time coming, indeed it's here, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Something new is happening. So what is this new temple? What is the new temple? Well, I've already taken a long time today, and I could have brought a whole more punch to this, but simply just trust me when I say this. The new temple is Jesus. Christ is the incarnate one. Walking around as the moving tabernacle, who is also the solid temple. And he is the place of God's presence, ruling and reigning. He is doing the function of the temple in his very being. He is the new temple. And what else? He's also passed on to us that we, the church, will be the temple. The temple made up of people with our bodies and lives who come awake to his spirit, who live out the truth of the kingdom of God, who have a posture towards the world and towards our God. Now, the mistake we have made in the past is we get to John chapter 4, we read that story. How many times have you heard this? And the major point of the story is this thing of spirit and truth. I've been to so many worship leader days where there's always a sermon on worshiping in spirit and in truth. But the problem is, is that's the commentary to the point of the story. It's important, but it's not the point. The point of John 4 is this revolutionary conversation Jesus is having about a new temple, a whole new way of doing things. It's one, I mean, this is a big thing. Think about it. Jesus is saying that whole thing that's up on the mountain doesn't matter. That's huge, heretical, big deal. 
He's saying a new time is here where it's going to be different. So, what is this new church? What is this new temple, sorry? It is Christ and his church. We are the new temples. Don't misunderstand what this means today. Church is not the word for a building. It's the people. We are the new place where God's spirit dwells. We are the new glorious space of his glory. This is why Paul can say, Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know that one? Again, it's a temple idea. We are the people where God's rest and his rule can take up residence with us. We are the people who can live the truth of that reality into the world. We, as human beings, physical, real, tactile, makers, eaters, people who talk, people who walk, people who have the life that we have, we can be the temple of God. And again, I come back to the hinge pin, the text of today. Do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? The whole task of today was to thicken up our imagination on that bit. What does it mean to think about my body as the temple of God? But the temple was where God ruled and reigned. The temple was where God rested. The temple was where his presence was. The temple, like, it should just get you, it should get you going, (laughs) I hope. Thank you. (laughs) Do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? You know, Paul is not asking something small of us here. Paul is not asking of us something stingy and minuscule. Paul is asking of us a whole new reality. He's offering us a whole new way to even see our humanity. And he's asking us, do you see this new reality that Christ has brought for you? Do you see it? He's offering us a way to say, look at how your bodies can be used. Look at the type of life you can live in habitation with God. Look at the glorious presence that God can fill you with. He's saying, your body is not just a vehicle for something. Your body is a holy place. And so today's talk in the book is entitled, The Rewiring. So what's the rewiring here? Like, why why have we talked about this? Well, we've talked about it because... We need to take Jesus' prophetic declaration to heart. We need to reimagine ourselves not just as people, but as the temple of God. People who live in a temple-like way, housing the Spirit of God and proclaiming like that temple on the hill, the new reality that is within. Now, as people who are temples of the Holy Spirit, our practices in the world will change. They won't just be activity. They won't just be merely activity. It actually becomes worship. Our lives lived in this reality become worship. Our prayer, our social justice, our eating together, our generosity, our giving of money, our receiving of goods, it all becomes part of viewing the world in worship. And it takes on something else as we do it with the awareness of the Holy Spirit within us. And it bears good fruit into the world. You know, and also, also it draws us to consider our physical bodies in a different light. It asks of us, are you you treating your body as if it's a precious temple? 
Are your physical lives living up to the measure of what is the generous deposit within? You know, in Ephesians, Paul says that we should live, uh, he says, uh, maturity, you know, grow up in Christ. And, And with that, he says that you would live to the full measure of what Christ has given you in his glory. In other words, that we would live up to the full measure of what he's given us. And I think it's the same thing in here. Do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Because if the temple is what the temple has been throughout the scriptures, and Paul is saying your body is that, that's a big measure. Yes, some of us, some of us might need to repent today as we just consider that, as we just think about our bodies and the way we've treated them. Some of us might need to think about our bodies and just do a quick stock take and think, man, am I actually living with this thing in awareness that it's important in my walk with God? Or is my body some sort of afterthought? I think it draws us to a beautiful vision of how to go about acting in the world. I think it draws us to a beautiful vision of how to make sure that what we do matters. And that if matter matters, then our actions matter. So let us all come to some sort of place today of a thickened imagination where we might be able to say that we're doing just that. That yes, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so let us today be the people who pray this 2,000 year old prayer of the church. Come Holy Spirit. We can never pray this prayer too many times. But as we pray that, we're not asking God just to fill our gathering. And that's beautiful and good and it's real and true. And I love it when that happens. When, when, when together people are praising God and there's a sense of His, His tangible presence with us. I love that. What I'm asking you about today, though, is what do we do when we need to just we just need to dial things back and go, okay, I'm the temple, the Spirit of God is within me. How's that going? And so, just for these last few minutes, what I want to do is just create some space, just to sit, to reflect, to think of your physical body, your physical being, the life you've lived this week. And uh, Nick's just beautifully playing so that the, the, the sweet band below us doesn't annoy us too much. But as we think, I want to invite you to pray a prayer that's been prayed for 2,000 years. Come Holy Spirit. My body is the temple of the living God. Come Holy Spirit. Come and fill me up. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God. Come. And merciful God, merciful Jesus, merciful Waidu Atapu, like your presence filled the cosmos, like your presence filled the tabernacle, and like your presence filled the temple, come and fill us again. Come and fill us again. Come and commune with us, God. May we find ourselves today to be a place where we could truly say, God is resting. God is ruling. God is reigning in here, in me. Come what may with the turmoil of our world. Come what may with the turmoil of a new cycle. Come what may with the turmoil of relationship and things that are broken and inequalities and injustices come what may but I start from here the Lord is ruling and reigning and resting in me may we be filled again with his spirit 
that we may be able to live the truth. That we may be like that temple placed on the hill. That our life may live truth into the world. That it may be a beacon for the fruits of the Spirit. And so God, take our actions, take our week ahead, our Monday through to our next Sunday. Take all that we are about to do with our physical bodies, all of the actions that our bodies will undertake. God, we ask today that from the center of who we are as the temples of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God would be our fuel and our fire. 